This morning, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week. If you were with us last week, we are in Romans chapter 8. If you grabbed one of the guest Bibles, we're on page 909 still. Uh, If you weren't with us last week and you don't know quite where we have been, uh, after this morning, anytime this week, you're welcome to connect with us online. We have all of our uh, services are streamed on Facebook Live. You can go and get caught up to past uh, sermons and messages there. We put all of our sermons each week up on our YouTube channel, so there's, they're there as well. Um, and also, we have a podcast that you can get through uh, any of the Spotify or Apple Music or any of those, or just from our website. We, we put all the sermon audio there as well, so you can get caught up. Um, but if you, if you remember, for those of you who were here last week, we set out to demonstrate that Romans chapter 7 is not the Bible's expected norm for the Christian life. And we, of course, uh, see this in the text. It's not something we bring to the text. It's something the text tells us. The, The man that Paul is speaking as there in that chapter is not Paul. He's not talking about, this is not his testimony about himself. It is instead a hypothetical man used rhetorically to make a point. And this is indicated there in in that chapter in verse 5 where Paul says there, uh, when we were controlled by our old nature, notice the past tense of his verb there, when we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. In other words, back before we were liberated by Christ and empowered by the Spirit, He's talking about a particular uh, situation in the life of God's people. Back when we lived according to the flesh, the flesh that was very much opposed to God, very much an inward principle and power that kept us bound to sin, and, and we're awakened to the possibility, or not to the possibility, we're awakened to the reality that there's something more than that, and yet I lack the power to reach to reach it. It's out of my grasp. And from that verse, verse 5 on, throughout the chapter, those verses go on to describe what that reality was like. What is it like to have this awakening, this awareness of just how sinful I am and just how far I have to go and how I am powerless to ever get there on my own? That's what Romans chapter 7 is describing. Those verses are not meant to describe the norm for the Christian life. And I want to reiterate that to you and to myself because we are being bombarded with a different message about Romans chapter 7 everywhere we look throughout evangelicalism. It is, it is, we are being force-fed this notion that Romans chapter 7 is the sum total of the Christian life today. That yes, Jesus has, yeah, Jesus saves me, Jesus forgives me, I am justified, he's done something for me, and that's it. And I think Paul would say, well, no, there's that and more. You're not just going to be a sinner. He has something more for you than that in this life. We also know from the scriptures that Paul can't be describing himself in chapter 7 because what he says in chapter 7 doesn't align with his own testimony. If you were to turn over to Philippians chapter 3, listen to what he says there. Um, there in chapter 3. The man in chapter 7, as you recall, is the one who wants to do what is right, who wants to do what is good, who loves God's law with all of his heart, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't do God's law. In fact, he can't do God's law. 
But look what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 3 concerning himself. Beginning in verse 2, he says, Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. He's talking about the, the, the folks who would add becoming a Jew to Christ in order to be a Christian. To be a Christian, to be a part of the people of God, yes, Jesus, but also the law. Also circumcision. Also becoming a Jew, the Judaizer crowd. Watch out for them. Verse 3, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. It's not a circumcision of the flesh. It is a circumcision of the heart. For we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Verse 5, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Does that sound anything like the man in Romans chapter 7? And yet I hear Bible teacher after Bible teacher after Bible teacher tell me that Paul was saying those verses in chapter 7 of Romans about himself. And I, I don't see it in the scriptures. That doesn't describe, this, this testimony here of his life before Christ does not square with what he says in that other chapter. But here's the thing, even if Paul had written chapter 7 as his own testimony and wrote what he wrote, says here in Philippians there, even if that was what we find in that chapter, even then his conclusions would have been the same. Because look what he says there in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3. Look how he continues. I once thought these things were valuable. <laughs> he once put all his stock into his own righteousness, his, his own ability to keep the law, his own ability to do all the things without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. In other words, even the greatest righteousness that one could produce by keeping the law can't hold a candle to the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ Jesus. And so, I reiterate what we started last week and if, it's, if it sounds like we're just repeating ourselves, it's for the sake of emphasis. We have to break free from the modern half gospel that is being taught and preached throughout churches in modern American evangelicalism. I reiterate it. Suggesting Romans 7 is the biblical expected norm for the Christian life is not only bad theology, 
It is bad exegesis, which is another word, a fancy word for interpreting the scripture. It's not how we interpret it here, and it's not how we experience the life of God here. But I get it. <laughs> I get it. I am like you. I, I too struggle with things. I too have hardships, and I, I have difficulties, and I fall short. I'm, I'm no different than you. I, God has called me to preach. He's called me to lead. He's called me to shepherd, but I'm a, I'm a sheep just like you. We're all, we're all part of the flock. And sheep, for anybody who's ever been around sheep for 10 seconds in your life, know that sheep are stupid. You and I are stupid. And if you're offended by that, it's because you're too stupid to realize how true it is. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just kidding about that. I get it. It feels like when we read the Bible and we come to a passage like Romans chapter 7, it feels like, yeah, that's, that's my life. That's where I'm living. This is what makes sense to me. It's easy for us to come to chapter 7 and say, ah, Paul's identifying with, <laughs> he's identifying with where I am. This is, this is all I can ever hope for. And, and we have a hard time with going from chapter 7 to something like chapter 8. Even on this side of, of, of justification, it's not just a, a hard thing for someone who hasn't become a Christian yet to understand. It's hard for even Christians to, to wrap their minds around and to reconcile how do these two chapters possibly go together in my life? How does my life connect with both of them when it feels like it only connects with one? We come to chapter 8, which I would contend, and I think the scriptures contend, is the Bible's expected norm for the Christian life. The Bible doesn't see you living in Romans chapter 7. The Bible sees you living in Romans chapter 8. And yet we come to that chapter and we look at our lives and we say, man, chapter 8 is just so out of reach for me. We find ourselves all too often locked in old patterns of behaviors, don't we? Persistent sins that beset us. Sinful proclivities. That's a, a tendency towards certain sin. We have these, these appetites, these desires in us that are clearly not of the Lord, but of the flesh. We mess up over and over, and we wonder, skeptically, I might add, if God could ever do anything more in my life. If you've ever felt that way, and I dare say many if not most of you have not only felt that way, but at some level feel that way today, you're not alone. It's the same experience of every Christian that is living in the already but not yet. Remember that sermon two weeks ago? That's why we started two-thirds of the way in Romans chapter 8 for the first sermon of four from that chapter. We didn't start in verse 1. We started on down, actually in verse, the second half of verse 17. We started there because we, we need to, to remember that there are certain things the scriptures say that we can attain in this life, that we can experience in this life, but there are certain things that wait until the life to come. And you feel that tension. You know what Christ has already done in you. You know what he's done for you. You know what he's doing, but you also know where, where you are not. <laughs> You know there's a, there's a finality to salvation that you have yet to experience. And you long for that day to, to experience that final freedom, that final justification, that final sanctification, that final deliverance, that glorification. 
but we're not there yet. And we don't want to bring those things into this life because they don't belong to this age, but to the age to come. So we live with this tension. We find ourselves in this in already, but not yet. And we feel this pain. It's that inevitable, inevitable pain that we experience when, when God comes into our lives and he begins to dig out the roots of sin. It's painful. Am I, next door, as you drove past the parsonage there in the fishbowl, you may have noticed a little garden. And that little garden sits on a bed of mulch that sits atop one of those little um, gardening tarps. I don't know what they're called, but it's to prevent the weeds from coming up. But every now and then, one finds its way through somehow. It's just proof that the devil is still at work in the world. And I have to go and pull those things out of there. And usually, I'm so bad at it, the top breaks off. I'm like, great. Well, I guess I'll have to do this again in about a week. But sometimes, I get, I get, I get it. And I get those roots. And as they come up, it makes this like really satisfying sound. Because it's coming from underneath the tarp. It's just really like, oh, it's immensely satisfying when, when I pull it. And it's like, there's like, you see this much of the plant up top, but it's like 10 times as much beneath. It's, wor- it's work to get it out. And, it, and it's, it's, it's struggle. And you are a weed. No, okay, you are not a weed. The sin in you is a weed. And you see it's, you see it's, you know, the top part, don't you? You see it when you, you know, say things you shouldn't say or do things you shouldn't do or when you're self-centered or fill in the blank, your own sin. You see the top part, but there's, there's a bottom part. And God isn't here to trim the weeds. He's here to rip them out. Amen. To rip them out. And it's painful. And I promise you, there's few things more satisfying to the ears of God than the sound of those roots coming out of you. It hurts. Because the power of sin, when we come to Jesus for the first time, the power of sin is broken there. But sin's principle, sin's remnants, are still very much present and at work in your heart. And so how do we deal with it? What do we do? Well, Phoebe Palmer, who I've never, in 10 years at this church, I've never quoted Phoebe Palmer Palmer one time. It's not a slight to Pentecostalism, I promise you. It just, it's, I've never had a reason to quote her until today. (laughs) Phoebe Palmer once listed the ways that Christians respond to this frustration. She gave four, four ways that Christians tend to respond to this this challenge, this problem that we face. The first is, they just settle in. Right? Just settle in. They just simply accept that this is just the way things are going to be until heaven. That there's always going to be roots of sin in my life. And they're going to be constantly manifesting outwardly, and we're just trying to trim them. It's just sort of like a resignation to to this reality, this pain, this tension that we're always in. Just kind of learn to manage it and deal with it. The second way Christians tend to deal with it is that some turn back. Some Christians remain so entrenched in sin after coming to Jesus that they cannot function as a Christian in this life. 
It's too much. While many people find a way to just manage things, others are so broken, they're so hurt, it's the, the pain and the challenge and the difficulty runs so deep that they cannot move forward in the Christian life, and so they just hit this wall. And they're so discouraged by it, and it's so hard, that they just turn back to where they were before Christ. They just return to those old strongholds of sin. It's devastating to see that in the life of a, of a person. The third way is they experience that wall removed in their life one small brick at a time. I think that's probably the most common view of sanctification among good Christian people like you and me, right? This idea that, you know, God, there's this wall of sin and God's, God's there to help you take a block out, you know, here and there. I got this, this brick is really, so, oh, I got, finally got that brick out of there. And then there's the next brick. And, and, and the hope is, if you manage to live long enough, maybe, just maybe, you'll have some, something that resembles freedom from the power and the principle of sin in this life. Maybe. It's just sort of that long, slow, tedious process. But what Palmer observed is that all too often, that view, that experience, tends to revert people back to number one. That settling in that we talked about. Right? If I, this is such a long, slow, painful process. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it. I'm impatient. You know what? I guess we'll just live with the way things are. Instead of seeking a deeper work of grace in this life. But there's a fourth option. And it's one that you are going to hear and you're going to reject. Probably. Because it goes against everything that we're told, everything that the devil wants us to believe, it goes against the flesh. But it's what this church and this denomination and this theological heritage has stood for from the beginning. There is a fourth option. That God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can bring down that wall in an instant. That he can obliterate it in your life in a work of grace so decisive that you can align your will with his will, that you don't have to be constantly butting heads with the Holy Spirit, that you can walk victoriously in love, love for God, love for neighbor, today. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 and 7 says, God's will for you. What is his will? Oh, his will is for you to be holy. And he has called us to live holy lives. Holiness is God's will for you as a Christian today. And like you, I want to know how. <laughs> okay, 
We know what our church believes. We know what our denomination believes, what our theological heritage believes, what Wesleyan Arminianism believes. We can see it throughout the teachings of the larger church throughout the centuries. We know what the scriptures say. I hear you, Pastor Sean, but how? Well, that brings us to our sermon text this morning. How's that for an introduction? (laughs) Romans chapter 8, verse 9 through the first half of verse 17. I say the first half because we started two weeks ago at the second half of verse 17. All right, so we're going to stop where we began two weeks ago. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. What are the main takeaways that you and I are to take from this passage as we consider all these things that we're talking about here this morning? Well, I've got three points, like a good sermon. Uh, you're probably saying, well, it's a bad sermon because you started with a long introduction. And for that, uh, that you're just going to have to deal with that because it, it's, it's what, the best I was able to do on a very compressed week, okay? So we're going to do our best to get through these in a, good amount, in a decent amount of time. Um, what's the first takeaway here? It's, it is this. In verses 9 through 11, hear, hear from the apostle God himself lives in you. God himself lives in you. In four verses, we hear this seven times. That to me sounds like repetition for the purpose of emphasis. God himself lives in you. If you belong to Jesus Christ, he himself, by the person of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit who raised him from the dead, God himself lives within you. Now, I know anytime we come to a passage that deals with the Trinity, that God is three persons who together are one, I know that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And the idea that somehow God dwells in me, that God himself is abiding in me, I get that is a mysterious reality. And there have been centuries of of Christian thought dedicated, much ink has been spilled to talk about and understand and try to explain and account for what that means. I get it's hard, it's mysterious, and it's challenging. But when it comes to this matter of living out God's will for our lives, for us to be holy as he has called us to be, I want you to at least know this. If you know nothing else from this first point, know this. There is a limitless supply of power to overcome sin available to you. It's not God has given you a thing. He's filled your holy, holy power meter up. And he said, okay, 
go do the stuff. And we're, we're pulling from this, this power bar. I'm trying to connect with the video gamers in here. You have the power bar, right? And every time you mess up, every time you use it, it goes down a little bit more. And you're hoping, oh my goodness, I better do something or I'm going to run out of my power. And then inevitably, it gets to zero. <laughs> like every time you have this emotional high and you're ready to go out and live for Jesus, and then you're in the world for like eight seconds, and you're right back where you were before, and, you, and you're out. And you're right back before the, the high. And you think this constant up and down, that's the norm. I, I just need the next high so I can get out of the low, and then we live up there as long as we can, and then we're descending back into the low. And Paul's saying, no, he doesn't give you a, a power meter, he gives you himself. He lives in you, and God has no limit. There is an inexhaustible supply of power to be the man and woman, or woman, not man and woman, good heavens, these days you can get trouble saying things like that. The man or woman God has called you to be. And you have to, you can either reject that or you can accept it by faith that that is true. There is a limitless supply of power to overcome sin available to you from the inside out. Victory over sin, living a godly life, the kind of life that Paul describes in Ephesians 4.24 as one of true righteousness and holiness, that is possible, but it's never by your own strength, ever. And if you are trying to live a holy life out of your own strength, you'll end up just like John Wesley did before his Aldersgate experience in 1738. That was Wesley's life. He was, when you read Wesley's life before Aldersgate, listen, it sounds like something that you and I will never hope to achieve in this life. It, is, it blows my mind the kind of Christian life he was living, and yet he knew that he was powerless ultimately to be the man God called him to be. You try to live out of your own resources, they will be exhausted in no time at all. And God's power comes by a supernatural work of grace. It is something he does in your life. And it's what the Old Testament longed for, isn't it? It's what the Old Testament anticipated, a day when this would be the reality of God's people. Hear the cry of David in Psalm 51.10. You know this, this psalm well. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit, a steadfast spirit within me. That's creation language, isn't it? That's transformation language. That's God, do a divine work. Do something that only you can do in my life so that I can be what I know I can't, you want me to be, but I can't be. Don't just do something for me, God. Do something in me. Don't just change my status. Don't just change my standing. Don't just change my relation toward you. Change me from the inside out. Make me something different than I am today. Enable me to be something I cannot be on my own. It was the cry of David's heart. And David was a man what? He was a man after God's own heart. That is a desire that God himself puts there. That's God's desire for you. Not to just do something for you, but to do something in you so that you be everything he desires for you to be. Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20. Here's the, the promise. They promise from God's own mouth. I will give them singleness of heart. Do you feel like your heart is divided today? 
that there's a war in your heart between God and the world, God and the flesh, God and yourself? That's, 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 the, that's Romans 7 right there. The divided heart. And God says, no, no, I want to give my people a singleness of heart. I will put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart so they will obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. Jeremiah 24, 7 echoes this. God again, same, the, same, the same one talking here. So it makes sense. It's the same message. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their what? their whole heart. Again, in chapter 31, I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In every one of those passages, the promise is for God himself to do something on the inside of his people. It is a work, a divine supernatural work that results in obedient living and grace-filled belonging. Did you catch that? The result of this is that they will truly be mine and I will be theirs. We're going to come back to that here in a moment. Listen to how Peter in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, describes this promise being fulfilled in the New Testament. By his divine power, God has... How has this happened? In your power and in your strength, by your resolve and determination to be the best you, you that you can be. No. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you, here's the key phrase, to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. God himself puts a new heart within us. God himself writes the essence of his law upon it. God himself renews our spirit. He refreshes us and revitalizes us. He brings us from death to life. He himself makes us to become sons and daughters of the Father. And where in Christ we see God partaking of the human nature by the Spirit, you and I, partake of the divine nature. And this is not some end of time after death, after Christ returns type of experience. No, Paul says in the first verse we read here that this is for those who belong to Christ today. God himself lives within you. But also, secondly, verses 12 through 14 is all about the truth that you, God is in you, the power is there, his presence is there, he's at work there, but you yourself must put the deeds of sin to death. You must put the deeds of sin to death. Which tells me that we have a part to play in this, don't we? All throughout the chapter here, we find imperatives for the Christian. Yes, it's about what God has done. That's uh, verses one through four of chapter eight. 
these remarkable things that God has done. And Paul will return to the things that God has done throughout the chapter because you and I need to be reminded that it's ultimately not about what we do, it's about what he has done, but then we must respond. There's exhortations for us. Verse five, you must think about things that please the Spirit. Verse six, you must let the Spirit control your mind. There's a permission that you and I have to give God to do the things he wants to do. It's the divine yes, isn't it, Miss Camille? Where we say yes to him. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Holy Spirit. Yes, Father. I grant you access to my heart. We call this consecration. I consecrate myself to you. In a, a, a real totality sort of way. I remember the day I did it. I remember it was the night I did it. I've talked to you about it before. It was in Hollow Rock Camp Meeting in 2002, July of 2002, at a missionary service. The sermon was from Philippians chapter 2 on the, the downward spiral of Jesus in, in becoming a man to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I knew that God was calling me to say yes to him with all of who I was. Not part of me, all of me. And I went down to an altar and I... I didn't know everything, what it meant, or what, it, what, it would, what would happen. I just knew that God wanted all of Sean, and God got all of Sean that night. And I'll never, that night changed my life forever. You have to let, that's what he says in verse 6, let the Spirit control your mind. Verse 12, you must put to death the deeds of your sinful nature. Now, Paul was, it's not the only place Paul addresses this, by the way. If you go to uh, Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about this there, this, this conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And, and he's talking about all these same things. And he'll say this in verses 24 and 25. L listen to this. It's the same thing. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are, living, we are living by the spirit, let us follow the spirit's leading in every part of our lives. In other words, there is a crucifixion of the flesh and a determination to be led by the Holy Spirit that occurs in the life of a Christian, that has to occur in the life of a Christian. Paul says in, here in this, back in our chapter here, to put those works of the flesh to death. That is, that's crucifixion language. That's execution language. You have to kill it. Today. It's not gonna happen automatically. And no one's going to do it for you. You have to do it. God reforms our desires and empowers our will, but we have to choose to allow him. We have to choose to align our will with his. You have to do something, church. It's not all done for you or to you. And we want a crossless salvation. We want cheap grace. We want God to do everything and us do nothing. And that's why you see a powerless church having zero impact on a culture spiraling into hell. Amen. We've settled for a half gospel. We're silenced out of fear. And we're not living the kind of godly lives he's called us to live. Faith that receives justifying and sanctifying grace is always, faith is always more than intellectual assent. You don't just say, I agree with that. 
I agree with that. No, faith is trusting obedience. From cover to cover in God's word, it is always trusting obedience. Where we see clearly who God is, where we trust in what he has done and what he is doing, and where we believe in his promises, and then when we act upon them, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Are you crucified with Christ? Or let me ask it like this. What in your life today needs to be crucified this morning? What in your life needs to die? And I know that right now the Holy Spirit is bringing something to your mind in answer to that question. I know it. I know it because he did it to me when I was preparing this sermon. <laughs> I was like, oh, that hurts. That hurts. Is it a sinful pattern? Is it a sinful attitude? Is it a grudge? Is it hatred? Is there a, some sort of secret in your life that needs to be exposed to the light? Maybe it's just the fundamental disposition of the heart that wants to remain in control. That's, that's our heart, right? That's, we want Jesus. We want the benefits of Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you did for me there. Thank you for wiping the slate clean. Thank you for giving me my, you punched my ticket to heaven, but I'm in control. Does that need to die? You being the boss, you calling the shots, you ignoring the clear voice and direction of God's word and spirit. Listen, every time we're presented with something that needs to go, you have a choice. You can either put it to death or let it live. And I, and I, I believe God in his infinite mercy and long-suffering with us gives us these precious divine moments where, where he, he, it's like that hard heart that we have, it's like it begins to crack and it suddenly, it's, the, the scales are falling, the, the outer crust is coming off. And we have this moment where he, he gives us this opportunity. I know what you're calling me to be, I know what you're calling me to do, and I know in this moment I can either do it or I can say no, or maybe later, or I don't believe that can happen, and then what happens? All that junk comes back and it's like twice as thick now. Because God's word will have a softening effect or hardening effect on your life. What do you need to nail to the cross, church, this morning? Today. And thirdly, it's our last point. God himself lives in you. You need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And thirdly, and this is so important, again, talking about God's merciful heart, his compassionate disposition towards us, Thirdly, his spirit, verses 15 through 17, the last chunk of the passage, his spirit joins with our spirit to assure us. To assure us. Of what, Pastor Sean? Well, verse 16. That you and I are sons and daughters of God. Amen. That you, as you think about living a holy life, living the type 
aligning your will with God's, being, living a life that is pleasing to him, all these categories and ideas and things we're talking about, that in the end, Paul says, you have not received a spirit of fearful slavery. And how many good holiness churches have so taught these things that their church goes away terrified that they're going to mess up? And it's crippling. The minute they fall short by a hair's breadth, they feel like they've lost their salvation. And they're constantly tiptoeing around God's anger. Paul says, no, 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 no. You've not been given a spirit of fearful slavery. No, you have a spirit by which you can call God Father. You were born of him. You're his child. You're an heir to all of his promises. He... Everything God has in store for you is available to you because he wants to give it to you because he loves you because you belong to him. That the holy, righteous, almighty, omnipotent one is our Abba Father should radically transform your entire perspective on everything. He's not just some offended judge out there whose verdict is thanks be to God directed at someone else. He's still angry, but he was angry at Jesus and not at me, so... But, oh, he might get angry at me again. No, he's a loving father. One who's less focused on your steps and much more focused on your your heart. Your heart. Paul's reminder of this reality in verses 15 through 17 amidst all of this legal language, and that's what justification, that's legal, that's forensic it's a forensic view of the gospel. It's, it's just one way of understanding it. It's not the only way. It's one way of understanding gospel, the gospel and salvation. Paul's reminder of this reality that we are children of the Father right in the midst of legal language is so important in life-giving because our tendency is to fall back into a form of legalism where we view ourselves and our relationship towards God exclusively in terms of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs. And and though Paul seems to be setting a very high standard here in Romans 8, it always has to be understood within this context, this familial context, this filial context. We are children of God. Some of you have been in my office, and everyone is invited to come to my office. By the way, the door is open for a reason. I keep it open with the exception of the the phone call or the, you know, maybe I'm meeting with somebody, or maybe there's like, a group of like really joyful, enthusiastic women down in the fellowship hall making so much noise, I gotta shut the door. <coughs> morning light. Um, <laughs> which I love morning light, but man, when I hear those joyful noises down there, I, I just can't focus on anything. So I do kind of push the door shut then. But generally speaking, the door stays open because my heart, my posture is open to you. And if you have come into my office before and looked at how it's decorated, you will notice that above my desk is a bullet, uh, cork board and it's, yeah, there you go. It has pictures on it. Pictures that my children have, and I've got a lot of them. It's like from cover to cover, it's full. Now, it's usually from when they were younger. It's not like Savannah drew this yesterday. She, her, her, her artistry has, has matured over the years, for sure. This is probably when she was, I don't know, six or seven, maybe. But it's, it's covered in, in pictures like this, and I wanted you to see a few of them. There's the first one from Savannah. I think the next one, there's from Will. Look at that masterpiece. And there, of course, is Nathan's, and I don't even pretend to know what's going on in this picture. Now, when you look at those pictures, what do you see? Be honest. You see scribbles. You see, like, like 
no attempt whatsoever to even try to abide by the lines of the, you know, it's like, you know, it's, you're not seeing, you know, a Rembrandt or a Da Vinci. You're not seeing something like that at all. But do you know what I see? Mm. See where I'm going with this church? I see imperfect expressions of perfect love. Now look, if I, a very poor, dim shadow of the Heavenly Father, can see that in my children, how much better can he see it in you? He knows your weaknesses. He knows your struggles. He knows your temptations. He knows your limitations. He supplies mercy upon mercy. He is long-suffering. He is patient. He is tender yet firm. And he is working tirelessly to conform you into the image of his son by nature, the son of God. And by the way, that was his vision from the beginning. Read Ephesians chapter one if you don't believe me. God's idea in his mind and heart was to make a people that resembled his son. That's his goal. That's the teleos, the end result of it all. He is working now, today. His dream is for you to be his masterpiece. And when you and I come to him in faith and say, Father, my life is a mess. I've done the same stupid things for years. I want to love you with all of my heart. I want to love you with all my soul and my mind and my strength. I want to align my will with yours. I want to be obedient. I want to live a life that pleases you and brings you glory, but I can't. And his response is, my child, there is grace for that. There is transforming grace for that. There is a work that he can do and will do in the hearts of his children. One that results in what John says in 1 John 4.18. What John calls a perfect love. God can perfect your love. Not perfect in some absolute sense. Not perfect in some like you've reached this point and you can, it can't get any greater. It can't get any better. But there's a sense where it can be full and complete and undivided for where you are at this point in life. He can make your heart whole today so that you can love him in obedience to his commandment. His commandments are his promises. He doesn't tell you to do something that can never be done by his grace. He tells you what he can do, what he wants you to do, and then he's the one that enables you to do it. As Paul says in Romans 5, 5, God sheds his love abroad in your hearts. Do you believe it, church? Do you believe it? Do you desire it? Will you seek after it? As a deer pants for water, does your soul long and thirst for the holy love of God? Our song in closing here this morning is called 
a tender conscience. I'm going to invite Pastor Jeff to come up and whoever's helping him up here on the platform. It was written by Charles Wesley. You may not have ever heard it called by that title before. That's what it was originally titled. Um, Over the years, it got retitled to I Want a Principle Within. You may have heard that. Maybe if there's any, uh, I see a few uh, former United Methodists in here. Who, um, who remember their hymn books, uh, I Want a Principle Within. It's not a familiar tune, so Pastor Jeff's going to, he reset it to a more familiar tune so you can sing it. And, and it is my prayer that, that this prayer would become your prayer. Because that's what this song is. It is a prayer for a, a new inward principle, a new foundational inward governing rule for life, one not of sin, but one of holiness. Can he put a principle of holiness in you? That's the prayer. Heart, a will, bound to God. Grant me, he prays, a filial awe. There's a phrase we don't use very much. A filial awe. In other words, a wonder that God is my father. Have you lost that today? Have you lost the awe that you are a son or a daughter by grace of the father, that you are a partaker of the divine nature, that God himself lives in you? Man, may he restore that filial all in me that I might not grieve the Father, that I would realize and experience and live into the power of the Spirit that is so freely offered to us. Will you pray the words of these songs as you sing it? You don't have to settle, church, for a Romans chapter 7 Christian experience. God is offering to you more in this life than just sin management. He wants to crush crush the wall of sin in your life today and fill you, fill you to the full from an inexhaustible reservoir of his holy love so that you can love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. You can. The great commandment can be your life today. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, your whole soul, your whole body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Will you let him do it this morning? Stand with me and we're gonna close with the time of singing and prayer. If you wanna come and pray that God would crush a wall in your life, Please come and do it. This may be that divine moment that God has given you where you, you see clearly what he's calling you to be, what he's calling you to do, and you can either respond or you can not respond. But I invite you to respond. You can come even now as we sing and kneel in prayer. Bring someone with you. They'll pray with you. Come get me. I'll pray with you or pray by yourself, whatever. Do the business God is calling you to do in your life here this morning. Pastor Jeff.